you're listening to High Temperature Times, and we're back with our third installment in the Metals March series. We're making these short episodes every week this month in an attempt to give our listeners a quick glimpse into the world of refractories in the metals industry. This week, we're breaking down aluminum processing with Mark Pomacino. The aluminum industry is a wide and varied beast, and I'll be the first to admit that I'm doing it injustice by limiting our conversation to only 10 minutes. But the show must go on, and I'm confident that we have some great material to highlight. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks, Griffin. Since we can uh, skip the introductions with such a regular guest like yourself, why don't you take a minute to outline a little bit of the diversity in the aluminum industry? Sure. I mean, the, the obvious delineation is between primary and secondary aluminum. So when we talk about primary aluminum, you're talking about starting with bauxite rocks and purifying and reducing that bauxite down to molten aluminum and then using the molten aluminum that is extracted from the bauxite via an electrolytic reduction, taking that primary aluminum metal and then further processing it in that facility. So secondary aluminum refers to aluminum processes where you use already melted aluminum, uh, so ingots, that either come from a primary plant or come from recycled metal, and then melt that material, alloy it, and uh, make the metals that you know we use to, to run the modern world. Yeah, so uh, a lot to cover there, and hopefully we'll have time later to talk about it in full. But in the meantime, let's cherry-pick some fun stuff. Um, I've read a few interesting reports that the aluminum industry changed a lot in the face of COVID. Can you outline that a little bit for us and what it meant as a refractory supplier to the now changing industry? Well, I mean, it, it relates to all the stuff, um, you know, that's going on in our lives due to COVID. I mean, we're not traveling anywhere. So the folks that make aerospace aluminum are hurting and, uh, you know, we're not seeing as much aluminum production for that. The automotive industry was a little bit slow, and so, you know, the metal that we um, produce for Ford trucks, bodies, and and other automotive applications, um, you know, is a little bit low, but everybody's sitting at home drinking beer, and so (laughs) people that that make containers, make packaging, uh, aluminum packaging, uh, can't melt enough metal, can't produce enough cans. Uh, so that we can all sit in quarantine and have our our favorite beverages. So I, I, they probably had to make new lines to meet this demand. Sure, sure. They had to uh, to open up lines that had been idled, and yes, they're building plants um, and expansions to plants. Uh, it seems like every week there's a new uh, aluminum container plant being being built or planned. And with the uh, the standard lead time of refractories that some people are quite familiar with, we, we probably had to take some forethought to get ahead of that, right? Sure. When you have a portfolio of products as wide as ours that can support the needs of all of our aluminum customers, right, we had to reassess our production capacities and what materials we're going to stock you know, so that we could respond to what our customers need. And uh, what are the primary drivers in the changing industry landscape? And how has HWI helped manufacturers realize these goals? Well, Every metal producer wants to produce more product in less time at a lower cost. So the, the more metal they can push through a furnace per day, per time, uh, the more money they're going to make. And so all of the things that they do to increase throughput are aggressive to and damaging to our refractories. So Do you have any examples of that? Sure. So electromagnetic stirring 
uh, has been a real innovation in the aluminum industry. So using, using magnets in order to create eddy currents in the aluminum metal and swirl it around uh, in order to stir it. So that allows the aluminum metal to, to melt faster, but now you're, you're putting more metal in contact with the refractory. Now you have aluminum metal eroding the refractory, and it just changes the, the, the wear mechanisms that are involved, and it's changing the way we think about designing our refractories for the aluminum industry. So with, with these new technologies and helping increase the, uh, the efficiency of the melt and getting more aluminum out faster, cheaper, we're probably having to develop some new refractories that can help combat these extra destructive mechanisms. Can you tell us a little bit about what's next in the pipeline for getting our customers better refractory lining lifetimes and more reliable products? Sure. I mean, some of it is, is promoting some of the, the really great products that we have now. You know, when, when you're not running the furnace hard, a lot of different refractories kind of look the same. Mm. Uh, but once you start to run the furnace harder and harder, the, the materials that have the best characteristics start to stand out. So in these more aggressive conditions, we find that some of our products like ArmorTech 65AL, uh, ArmorTech 65ALC, that whole family of products, that in these more aggressive environments, they start to stand out even more from their peer products, both within our portfolio and across the industry. Uh, additionally, we're finding that um, you know some some older solutions, phosphate bonded brick, that are the stalwarts of the industry and have been around for for quite a few years. Um, you know, they kind of went out of style when really um, high tech monolithic materials were developed, but they have held on and give some of the best performance in the aluminum industry. And so we're trying to offer those solutions, you know, which Harbison Walker has pioneered to a lot more customers, customers in different different parts of the aluminum industry that may not have used a phosphate bonded brick in the past. What is it about the phosphate bonding that uh, kind of makes it attractive? Well, when you have a phosphate bonded brick, you take cement out of the equation. And so then the what goes on at the melt surface involving alkali attack and flux attack, you know, that comes from, from both the impurities in the aluminum metal, but also these fluxes that, that also help aluminum manufacturers melt metal more efficiently, more metal per unit time, that those things that like to attack cement-bonded monolithic products, they don't attack a phosphate-bonded brick the same way. I could tell you a lot of bricks don't have cement in it. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the phosphate doing? <laughs> The, the phosphate is naturally aluminum resistant and naturally resistant to alkali so that that bond system, both chemically, it's resistant to penetration and reaction with the aluminum metal, and it drives the porosity lower in that phosphate bonded brick. So for a very low viscosity metal like aluminum, that extra low porosity, smaller pore size, different pore size distribution that's inherent to the phosphate bonded brick really starts to stand out. It's pretty cool. Thank you very much, Mark. As always, it's, it's great to have you on High Temperature Times. The aluminum industry certainly is booming, and we are thankful to have the opportunity to work with them. If you'd like to learn more about the aluminum industry or anything else mentioned here today, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. But we'll be back next week to continue the party we've got going for Metals March. Thanks for listening. <laughs>